Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is David Fitch. He is the B.R. Lindner Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary in Chicago. He's pastored and participated in many church plants, including Life on the Vine Christian Community and Peace of Christ Church, both in greater Chicago. He writes on issues the local church must face in mission, including cultural engagement, leadership, and theology. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently Faithful Presence. He's also a good friend, and I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. I give you the one, the only, Dave Fitch. Fitch, this has been, I feel like, one of the most anticipated moments in podcasting history, at least in certain religious, ecumenical, missiological, and other spiritually concerned circles. You coming on and sitting in the interview chair with me, Scott Jones. Give and take. Here it is. Scott Kent Jones. There it is, man. That's me. Hey, it's uh, it's finally great to arrive. I don't know if I can live up to that excessive uh, introduction, but it's good to be here. And that introduction uh, was take two, by the way. Yeah, the first one kind of blew up. Was flat. Uh, was flat. Went nowhere. But uh, no, seriously, uh, I'm an admirer of your podcast skills because you bring together an unusual. I don't want to blow you up too big here, but you bring together an unusual uh, conglomeration of theological mind. Uh, uh, acerbic wit and and podcast radio talent, unlike any place on the airwaves. So it's an honor and a privilege to be here. And I'm never, never sick at sea. And it's actually an honor and privilege to have you, my friend. Here we go. So let me ask you this. You've been, I think it's fair to say, a critic of a sort of Christianity, in, particularly in the United States, that blends God, country, that wraps up faith with flag in the worst sense of the word, that sort of oftentimes uses faith for political and other interests. So you were writing, you know, and talking and speaking when Bush was president over several administrations. So Bush got 78% of the evangelical vote. Trump got 81. Did you make it worse? (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh... Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, if it went down 2%. Yeah. Here's here's what I got to say. That That is a absolutely astute observation. And I think there's something to be said for what actually happened there. Because as you know, between Bush, Trump was uh, Obama. But what actually happened uh, uh, between Bush and Trump, I believe, was uh, an amped up antagonism. One of my favorite words comes from dialectical materialism within the realm of the Zizek, some uh, post-Agilian Marxists and all that stuff. There was an antagonism that just amped up. I would say uh, the progressives on all sides just uh, hurled um, their anger at conservatism. And so the um, the side that was now being pulverized during the Obama administration, and I'm talking about, you know, typically the blue-collar white person or just generally speaking the white person over the age of 55, especially the white male, just felt that they had nowhere else to go, and they pushed back five times worse. That That's the 
theory or the uh, principle of the way antagonism works. If you are trying to change the world, do not confront power head on and go full tilt, releasing all your anger and throwing and hurling all your bombs and demonizing the other for all it's worth. In other words, the white man. And, you know, we, we all remember what happened. And I'm not saying I wasn't on the side of Black Lives Matter. I wasn't. I was also on I was on the side of Black Lives Matter. I was on the side of the very other causes that were railing against the conservative establishment. But finally, when push came to shove, those people just uh, pushed back with the force of 50 times more what they had previous. And that's how we got from 79 or 78 to 81. Um, and this kind of illustrates uh, what I've been trying to say for a long time is really what's going on in Christianity as a whole is this bifurcation of two sides. Wait a second. Romney got, I think, less than, down to 77. So what were you publishing about the time it dropped to 77? Was that good or bad? <laughs> was that was that the Fitch bump? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Fitch had no bump. I mean, I, 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 I'm inconsequential. I'm this little Anabaptist neo-evangelical that uh, everyone wants to get mad at who's in on my Facebook page, but that's about it. And, and so I had no, no political bump whatsoever. But I am very interested in this question of why does violence antagonism um, basically drive the evangelical progressive evangelical, post-evangelical edifice of Christianity in North America today, and it's getting us nowhere in terms of our witness for the gospel. And, and, and by that, and you mission. mean, for our listeners who are not, like, uh, re religiously affiliated or don't follow this stuff as closely as maybe you or I do, you're saying the, po the evangelicals have been, at least over the past few decades, pretty by antagonism, I mean, they define themselves pretty much over against it's 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 a very us them mentality around like things like hey we we got an inerrant Bible we got a Jesus you decide for or against and you're either for them or against them even if you just say you're for them we might say you're against them if you don't pass the catechism test you know and these sorts of of things uh, around conversion around Jesus around uh, sometimes matters of sexuality have made evangelicals a prickly sort of you know the, the a prickly the, bunch a prickly bunch it's it's a it's a long way from the days where even though billy graham is a little cons more conservative even jimmy carter you could argue was a sort of hey we want a nice evangelical we're tired of the imperial presidency and and and, and some of the watergate and all this is but now you're saying people that have left evangelicalism right and that are and it's combativeness tend even if they change their doctrinal beliefs change their religious practices still tend to keep with them some of the adversarial mentality and mindset that made the the place they left the place they wanted to leave yeah i mean i i'm i'm actually writing a manuscript beyond enemies the church is reconciling presence and i'm trying to show how um the various constituencies that you just met uh mentioned once we lost power in the culture and that was Jerry Falwell's kind of response. Hey, we're losing our culture. We've got to take it over again for Christ. Uh, once we started losing power, we started infighting over who's in and who's out, 
who believes in the Bible and who doesn't. And it really became the evangelicals versus the liberals. If you remember the six, you don't remember the sixties. I wasn't I actually, born, Fitch. I wasn't. I born. was a small. I don't small even child look like. In the 60s. I don't even look like I was born in the seventies. Okay. <laughs> but but those days of Billy Graham, actually, Billy Graham was on the most admired uh, top ten most admired figures list in Time magazine every year. Evangelicals were not despised. Actually, evangelicals were part of the mainstream, and they actually had a positive vibe in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, but something really went wrong starting in the 80s when they aligned themselves with Ronald Reagan, and then all hell broke loose. Wars started to take place. Wars meaning wars between uh, the evangelical moral majority types and those who were the progressive. Uh, and it, it, it became over, uh, it emerged over what our vision of America is, what, what we believe the Bible is, and especially over moral questions like abortion, gay sexuality, and other things like that. Is Billy, is Billy Graham's successor really, if you had to find one, someone maybe like Rick Warren more than his own son or any of the other evangelical? I mean, Rick Warren seems to be that kind of guy that is in that traditional evangelical mold and yet kind of is compassionate, gave his all of his salary back to the church. I mean, I mean I'm sure he's not your model for pastor theologian, but is he is he in some sense an, an heir to that legacy of the positive, popular evangelical? I mean, I have a hard time thinking about it that way because I see evangelicals, uh, you know, not no longer holding that kind of public uh, power, authority, acclaim, positivity, and so there is no more Billy Graham. And uh, but Joe, even, Joe Osteen though has, I mean, I mean, a massive following. He does. Yeah, I went but, to the bathroom in his church when I was visiting uh, my brother-in-law in Houston, and I'll tell you, it's a nice bathroom. It's a nice state. I, I asked the people, I asked the security, you know, receptionist people, I said, do you see Joe Osteen around this place that much? And they said, we see him every Sunday. <laughs> you mean up front there on the yeah, TV screen? Well, yeah, well I, I mean, I I was in his church. I was in the real Rocket Stadium. And they, that's what they said. We see, we see Pastor Osteen every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, if, if you want to comment on that, I think uh, that's the last vestige of cultural Christianity left in America, and it resides in Texas, and it's, it's best expression, the amalgamation of Christianity, cultural values, affluence, white affluence, you know, achieve all you can achieve, white privilege. I think that's Joel Osteen, Houston, Texas. But I don't think that's uh, flourishing Christianity in North America, do you? Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm reserving judgment on whether it's flourishing or not, uh, but I, I think, well, I mean, it's not per se my cup of tea, but, you know, what do I know? But I think, you know, it's interesting because in Faithful Presence, you open up talking about there's a crisis of people feeling the absence of God. I mean, there's not the power of the presence. And I, 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 like, I, I mean, I'm not disputing that fact, but, like, I think if you look demographically, most of the people that would describe themselves as Christian— Right. Would at least among white Americans, probably. Well, I mean, African Americans probably would say the same thing, but most white Americans that would describe themselves as Christian would say, I feel the presence all the time. I'm believing. I mean, they would not describe the, the crisis as they don't feel. In fact, they, they use imminentist, imminent language, imminentist language for God all the time. God's gave me this parking space. I believe it. he delivered. Here you go. I mean, God, I'm feeling my blessing. So I think, I mean, because you're a guy that's, you're in the evangelical camp, although a critic within it, but you believe the Bible's authoritative. You even believe the leather's genuine. I mean, you were raised in on the team, right? And yet it seems like you're, you, the, 
the the crisis you're identifying, most people that would self-describe as on the team would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know, Scott. I don't think I agree with you. I think, uh, uh, well, <clears throat> right at least now, they would self-describe. No, you might say they're actually what they say is the presence is actually just capitalistic consumer baptized, reified, you know, neoliberal desire, optimism, whatever. But I mean, they wouldn't say that. Uh, okay. I don't know who it is we're talking about anymore. The they's, but I think there I'm are. I'm saying your average, your average conservative evangelical Protestant in North America. And I'm sorry. And we could talk about non-white, um, evangelical Protestants, which is, which is more complex because of the, the political and culturally the way it mesh, those things that works out differently. But for the average white American evangelical, they have, they don't have, it seems like a crisis of of faith or God's presence. In fact, I mean, look, I mean, Donald Trump has told them they can say Merry Christmas again. All is well for, the, for, for many, for many, right? Like, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. So by the way, I live in Chicago. Uh, um, I, are we still on? Yeah. Okay. Um, I live in Chicago. I do I, do I seem Houston. gone? Do I seem like I left? The no, trailer? no. I heard a little, uh, bubble from sp- Skype or someplace, and it seemed like we might have gone off. I, but we're, not, but we're, not, we're on, Fitch. We are okay. so on. Uh, I'll just look to you for the technical expertise because I know nothing. Okay, but uh, but Scott, okay, uh, we're talking. I mean, evangelicalism is historically a white uh, movement within the United States and Canada. Uh, African American churches are not. Do not ascribe, especially after the last election, but before the last election, there's a there's a black evangelical association. But besides that, no, no black church that I know talks about being an evangelical. It's not within their language. Right, right. The immigrant churches do come in for various reasons, uh, whether it's Asian or whether it's Latino, uh, do come into the evangelical edifice. But by and large, we're talking about a white uh, church uh, engaging all sorts of complex cultural issues that they've never thought had to deal with until like the last 25 years because they were in charge. They were in power. They were the place to be. Um, but having said that, there's there's Texas evangelicals, but I don't know any of the evangelicals you're talking about. Um, I, most, most white evangelicals I know go to some uh, white megachurch uh, in Chicago area or Toronto or New York, uh, and uh, they are very busy, very hyped up, trying to keep up their uh, affluence, their house payments, their big cars, their job, contributing and doing all the things the church that they're supposed to do as good Christians. But they're they're devoid of presence. They're they're losing faith in. I mean, the the decline of the populations, the Pew Research I, Foundation, all those all those statistics are saying we're on a decline. So, so sure, I, the, I, but I know lots of evangelicals. Like I know, I mean, I have most I, most of my uh, family members, uh, me that my in laws. Although, call them in laws, like you know, they're great. I mean, so that I feel very close to my wife's parents and siblings and everybody. But they, I mean, they're most of them are rooted in very evangelical traditions, and I have lots of friends that are rooted in very traditional evangelical traditions. Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't say, hey, they you people might use pious language. And might do religious demonstrative practices on Sundays, but the real power of the presence in a way that really is kind of echoing the the incarnate reality of the Jesus event that occurred 2,000 years ago and moves on in the spirit and through mission, 
That's not what you're saying. But then again, they, I I think they would say they 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 feel the power of the presence, right? Like my I have to, I know so many people that are so into John Piper, right? And I've never went through a I, I tried to read one of Piper's books. I got through like a chapter and a half. I got through like a whole Left Behind novel. And you know what the problem with that book was? I was like, this is a bad book, but it's a page turn. And the problem is, I if I believed in the theology, I'd want to be left behind. Why would I want to go to heaven when I could be fighting the tri- you know with the tribulation force and getting Carpathia? I think, but you know what I mean? Like I couldn't get it. But people, Piper is huge, and those people would say, "Hey, we're the holiness of God, the presence of God. We're practicing." I mean, they're they're. I mean, I'm just saying, as someone who's deconstructing that, how, how do you get inside the framework that? Again, I think you would say, "Hey, look, there's a lot of things that the neoliberal rat race is running these people ragged, right?" But yeah. a lot of them, if you ask them about their own piety and their own experience of the presence of God, they 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 wouldn't say that that they don't feel the presence. So, okay, first of all, one comment. Uh, I think you're wrong. You need to get out more. You need to talk to more evangelicals. I think they're all miserable. Okay, but having said that, let me uh, let me, let me... <laughs> let's let Fitch speak for you. <laughs> I'll tell you, dude, you're miserable whether you know it or not. <laughs> <laughs> let me give you a more theological answer. I think that um, when we talk about the presence of God and the real presence of God, uh, the Catholics wanted to say after Trent, they wanted to say, oh, we know where the presence of God is. It's in this bread. It's in this wine. Uh, We'll call it transubstantiation or various versions thereof. Then came the, the, the Protestant movement in reaction to that, which turned to Schleiermacher, which turned to Pentecostalism, which turned to all good Protestants trying to find the presence as a subjective internal feeling. So we go from the objective to the subjective internal. I feel it. I feel the presence. Oh, I have this feeling inside is the presence. I think that's maybe what you're talking about. Oh, yes, I know the presence of God. But what I'm talking about... Let me just qualify something, too. Your book, Faithful Presence, Schleiermacher would love this book because he was a Moravian, he said, of a higher order, and he was always trying to get people within his church to get into smaller groups of praxis. I mean, he had, I mean, given he was in a sort of late Christendom model church, you would say, but he was always striving to build disciples following practicing the presence of Jesus within that larger church, the church within the church and extending that into people's homes and things like that. So Schleiermacher, I think would be, if he were around today, he would write an endorsement in the foreword of, of, of faithful presence. I did not know that particular aspect of Schleiermacher until today. But this is what happens, folks, when you come on the podcast with Scott Jones. But I'm a Schleiermacher say, defender. If the if the Catholics saw it in the objectively in the body and the blood, in the bread and the wine, if the Pentecostal Schleiermachian saw it as this internal subjective feeling, which, by the way, Schleiermacher was an inheritor of Immanuel Kant. I don't see why he would go around asking people to get in touch with the presence as a social reality, because that's what I'm saying. That's what all good Anabaptists say. The presence of Christ is among us where we gather and practice the Eucharist, practice reconciliation. And that includes not just the four walls of this church building, Mr. Schleiermacher. No, it it includes when we meet in the neighborhoods around our tables, in the parks, and indeed when we go and we sit 
in McDonald's or we sit at Potbelly Bar or we sit in the hookah bar and we tend to what God's doing there around these various tables. That's exactly what Schleiermacher would say. Because he would say over against Kant, Christianity can't be knowing or doing. Right. It's not it's not metaphysical knowledge primarily. Right. He said he said it can't be knowing because then theologians will be the best Christians and everyone knows that's not true. And he said, nor can it be reduced to doing. It can't just be. And when he said feeling, he wasn't thinking, uh, oh, my emotional subjective state today. He was thinking to feel like this deep sense of something transcendent coming through Christ's presence that comes through practices and and that comes only through community. He's like, you can't for Schleiermacher, right? Now, this is going to, we might disagree with this, right? Schleiermacher would be very skeptical of mystical encounters with Jesus in a mosque in the 1040 window where there was no Christian community with the scriptures and the Eucharist and things like that because he thought that, that Jesus is bound up with in the ongoing story of the unfolding of salvation with the concrete practices that you talk about in this wonderful book. We got Harawas endorsing it. Uh, we got... Uh, Sharif, uh, Nordling. We had all kind of endorsements. We got Todd Hunter, Anglican Bishop. We got people all over Pete, endorsing. Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart. We got all these people. He and, did not. He did not endorse. Well, he would if he read it. If he read it. If he read it, he would. He would. I would get Peter Lightheart. Second edition. I'm going to get him too. But we digress. Can you say something about you? In the beginning of the book, you talk about your parents dropping you off at a Christian college. And you having to figure out for the first time, what the heck church should I go to? And you say, you say basically that people, a bunch of people kind of loaded up you know, you know, on, the, on the caravan and like, hey, this pastor's hip and relevant and normal. And then you, you say that that's the first time as a kid who grew up in an evangelical church kind of home that you had to think about where you were going and why, right? And so can you tell a little bit about how you got from that experience in college to someone who was rethinking pretty radically in some ways. I think, you know, I, I mean, at the root, just the etymology of the word, pretty radically the tradition you were raised in. And, and also, why haven't you left it? Um, all right. So I think that that experience as a 16-year-old, I, I was really young when I went to college. And... You were like Doogie Hauser, um, THD, instead of MD. Do you, I skipped a grade. In Canada, I skipped a grade because... It's a long story, but I won't go into it. But the point is... Because they're all hosers. <laughs> hey, 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 don't be dissing my Canadian heritage. Anyways, um, we could use a little more Canadian heritage we could just, in the United just, States. Justin Trudeau okay. is, 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 I'll tell you, I mean, that that Justin handshake? Trudeau is something. The handshake? He, he just the handshake, is, what's wrong? I just like Justin Trudeau. I think he's... Uh, somebody asked him in a thing, at, at some uh, physics department in somewhere... It, what he knew about uh, quantum physics and computing. And he went on to give this 90-second explanation of why quantum physics radicalizes computer science as we know it. And I'm like, yep, that's the guy. My problem with Justin Trudeau is he's too good-looking. I don't trust people that are that good-looking. It's part of a problem and security issue. I don't know what, but... Uh, and yeah, anyways. you and I have a wonderful relationship. Well, no, I actually think you're a good-looking man, I'm too. not bad. I'm not bad, but... Okay, the glasses really work for you. But anyways, uh, getting back to drop being dropped off uh, to college at college, 
and being thrust into a situation now where I no longer had to go to church, or at least nobody would know if I didn't go to church. They weren't taking attendance at this particular college that I know of if, if you did or did not go to church. And I had to ask, why go to church? Why, why go to this church versus that church? The only church I ever went to was my family's church. Why? Because that's where I went, because that's where we went. That's where I was, you know, um, we don't wake up every morning and say, why do I go to church? But this is the dilemma of modern America today, where church is no longer this grounding social institution that holds everything together for people. It's become, you know, the, the consumer critique. It's become something to get your spiritual goods and services met so you can go and somehow survive this crazy world as a, as a Christian, not even a good Christian, as a Christian. And I just think that that is something a lot of people, especially millennials who are getting, you know, have gone to church very disillusioned with the church they grew up in, most of them evangelicals, and they're asking, why do I even need to go to church? Uh, I, I can study. Actually, I can get a good, better sermon on on uh, by listening to podcasts like Scott Jen, Scott Jones's podcast. I can get, I can learn better theology by picking and choosing books and reading and, and listening to podcasts. Why go to church? And I think we have to ask this question, what does church have to do with uh, my who I am, what I'm doing, where I'm going, and and how I'm going to live in the world and how God's going to change the world. A lot of people think justice is the most important thing we should be interested in this world. I get why they say that. But what does church have to do with justice? And how do I determine what justice is without a tradition, uh, a language to say what justice is? And I think that's why we have to inevitably come back and say, hmm, I think I need to be grounded in a church that's historically connected to who Jesus was, is, and shall be, and is taking us somewhere. <clears throat> but I think <clears throat> that question... What was the church like that you went to back then at 16? Uh, cl well, in some ways, classic evangelical. Uh, with all the things that we describe as evangelical, you go to church, you sing a few songs, you hear a good sermon, you you learn a good morality, but uh, somewhere there's there's gap between it and the world and justice in the world and what's going on in the world. Um, there's a lot of piety, sentiment, um, have an experience uh, of the Holy Spirit with the church tradition, um, the, that God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit can meet all our needs, whatever that might be. Um, and it's a very personal salvation. Uh, and it and it's very specifically built around the substitutionary view of the atonement. I'm not. I I we all know that. Uh, I am pardoned for my sin. No longer the subject of God's wrath. I'm going to heaven when I die. But it's but for my tradition, it's much more than that. How to live a holy life depending on the Holy Spirit. And where did you? So you, after you graduated from that's college, Christian Missionary Alliance, by the way. CMA. Yeah. Tozer. That's right. He's a big. I love Tozer. I do too. I like Tozer. I wanted to take a quick break from my conversation with Dave Fitch, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors. Leia Paulos, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash scott kent jones and there you can find information about how to give if you give just five bucks a month you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects 
that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with my good friend, Dave Fitch. So you, you graduate and you went into finance, right? Did you study finance? Well, I went to seminary first out of college. I had a philosophy degree. And uh, I, um, what, I studied, what college was this? Well, the college that I talk about in the book is Taylor University, but I then transferred to Wheaton College for a lot of circumstantial reasons having to do with my family moving to Illinois. So and you were a crusader. Well, that's what we called them back then. <laughs> back, then the, back then. Now they're the thunder. They're going to tr- go yeah. back to that because Trump, Merry Christmas, the next thing you're going to be allowed <laughs> to say crusaders. <laughs> that, that. I don't want to talk about that, but, uh, but then I went to seminary. I went to actually six seminaries and got an MA. Why did you go to six seminaries? I started out at Gordon Conwell. It cost a little bit too much money. I ran out of money. I got, you know, I, I got a good start there, but then I came back to Chicago. I lived in the basement of my parents' place. Um, how how old is Fitch in the basement at that point? 22, three, no, two, 22. All right. So that's not that bad because you're not, I mean, you're still, I mean, technically you could, you still could be living in a dorm. So at 22, that's acceptable. 22, I'm in the basement and I'm, I'm driving garbage trucks and, uh, and I'm, I'm going to Wheaton grad school, Trinity Evangelical Divinity. I ended up at Northern Seminary where I teach right now, which had this guy named Robert Gulick and, and other guy named David Scholler, two outstanding New Testament scholars in their day. I went to Lutheran School of Theology. I went to Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. I also went to the Divinity School for one course at University of Chicago. And so, so it's I not got sequential a, all the time, the whole time. So it's, some of it was like going at the same time. Yes. Uh, there's this thing called uh, the Acts Consortium where you can cross-register uh, if you're in Northern Seminary. You can still do that to this day and get a great education. But I, I used, I went and found the best scholars on every issue. If I wanted to study Paul and women, uh, Catherine Osyke at the uh, Catholic Theological Union back then, I, I mean, I found, I just found the best scholar to, and I had a great education, but I came out frankly, disillusioned with what I saw as church. I couldn't even see myself as a pastor in the way pastors were, what they looked like, how they dressed, what they did, the kind of churches they led. I was turned off and I went uh, to Miami and got half of a business degree. And then I got a job in finance. In why, why business though? Why, why did you go from pastoring to business. I mean, it seems like there's intermediate things like philosophy or teach religious studies at a Catholic high school. I mean, why, what, why no, the I, kind of, I just wanted to get a job and I had friends in, in various, uh, jobs in the financial service industry. And I thought I could do that too. Uh, you know, it's amazing how quickly you can pick up markets and economics, especially since I had a few economics courses in business school. So, um, I just wanted to get away figure it out. I was, my dad had got killed in a car crash, uh, when I was in Miami by a drunk driver, I was disillusioned with everything, trying to figure it all out. So I just need to go out and get a job and figure it out. And I spent the next six, seven years, you know, in what I would call uh, a wasteland, I would call wall street, a cesspool. It's, it's the worst. Well, I now know that there's a lot of other places that drive on the same competitive urges, the same objectifying or commodifying of people and all the evils of our socioeconomic culture where it's, it's in its more raw forms. But that's where I experienced it. And I like to tell people that's where I got saved for real, the second time for real. 
I didn't know that about your dad. I'm sorry. I didn't know that that was part yeah. of your story. Yeah, that, that's do, a big part of my story. Do you feel like spiritually, was that like a compounding factor? Because your dad was a pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he was a pastor and a district-level executive in his later years. Um, and he was a great man. And he still has an impact on me to this day. But that was a struggle. That was a tragedy uh, for me. But it kind of brought to a head all of Because I was having already struggles with church what it meant to be church, authority and structure in the church, all the things millennials are dealing with today that they think it's the first time anybody ever dealt with it. I was dealing with it back then in the 80s, the mid-80s. Did, did you talk and with your dad about it? I did. And my dad and I came to some sort of an agreement uh, that I needed to sort this out, and he was fine with it. I wrote a master's thesis on the charismatic structure of the early church, the way authority worked in the early church, that it was not hierarchical. This is probably where it all started in terms of my Anabaptist leanings. Um, and my dad and I came to uh, a piece about it, and I'm grateful for that uh, because we I, I, we played golf uh, the last time I saw him before he was killed in that crash, and I really felt like, you know, we uh, we we met, um or mended ways and have a, had a good self-understanding with each other. Do you feel like, I mean, you know, I think about the story of John the Baptist and his father has this long period of silence, right? After a child they really wanted. And, you know, we, there's this sort of, if it's not a miraculous birth, it's a, it's a, it is a birth that, that is out of the ordinary. And then, you know, everybody thinks he's going to name him after himself and names him John. And then the next thing we see, and his dad's a priest, you know, a man of the temple, right? A pre, you know, he's a guy that, that maintains the institution of religion. And then he's got to see the son he longed for be a critic of that same institution saying, actually, hey, this is so far from where we need to be to experience the coming of God's faithful presence once that we got to go out and act like we're, is, we're, we're, we're not even Israelites. Here. We got to go do mikvah washings like a Gentile would do. We got to go back to the river. We got to go, we got to, it's a new, we, we've got to start over again. Is there, was there any like of those tensions in the sense of your dad was a guy that was given the keys to the, to the institution and you're a guy that is frustrated with the way it functions. Is there like, was that, I mean, so, so how much, I mean, was that a hard one reconciliation? Oh, I don't think so because, um, I think the great thing about my father was he gave, he was willing to give me the space I needed at the time. Now he wasn't really happy about it. And, um, I really felt like, I mean, my dad for his time was an extremely well-educated guy. He had a master's uh, from University of Chicago in the Art Institute, which is ancient church, ancient, no, ancient uh, history. And, uh, um, but I really felt like I, what, what, what I really, this is in my early twenties. I was coming at him. I was giving him verse, you know, verse after verse. I was talking about the way the church was here, here, and here. And how did this make sense? And I think I was a threatening dude when I was like 22, 23. And, uh, yet he took it graciously. And to this day, folks, I think that's so important in the way all of us who are older now dealing with millennials, we have to make space, you know, Open up space for the presence of God to allow for this these pushbacks for these um, um, these aggressive in your face the, uh, ang even the anger that's going to come out 
uh, in the rebellion against the institution. My father allowed me to do that. And, and then, sadly, he was killed too early uh, to see what became of it later in my life. And now, even to this day, okay, so I didn't come back into the ministry for a good 10 years. And I, I came back only by way of getting a PhD and then uh, becoming a pastor. So, I mean, I really came at it in a completely, totally different way than him. But nonetheless, um, even now today, I am a defender, if you want to put it that way. I don't think the church needs defense. But I am someone who says we need the church. I'm a Hauerwas devotee in one respect. It, if we don't have the church as a social reality in the world, where where are we going to base our understandings and work out are the navigation in this world in a post-Christendom setting. I mean, are we going to trust the government? No. Are we going to trust the schools? No. Are we going to have our own personal mystical experience? No. Because none of that is really possible. Grounding your Christian faith requires a community, requires a tradition, requires a language, requires a uh, intersubjectivity where I find myself. And the problem, I think, with a lot of people, millennials especially, is they don't have that place they trust anymore. So they got to have a place to do it. We need to make those places. We need to plant church. Can I put it this way? We need to plant churches for those people so that they can recover what it means to be the people of God in the world. Okay. So can I read you something and get your Absolutely. response in, in yes. response to what you just said, like sort of reader response criticism, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing reader response. It's a, it's Fitch response criticism. I'm, I'm coming up with a new sort of criticism. We can take this down to McKnight and teach it at Northern Seminary, right? Um, this is from, um, Paul Zoll's Short Systematic Theology. It's 87 pages. You and love that guy. I love that guy. He's He's been an incredibly important figure in my life. I went, in, I went into Holesclaw's office, and there's a Paul Zoll book. There, hey, and I go, hey. aha, Scott Jones has been here. I know he exactly. has. Exactly. Uh, in, in, in a section of his systematics, which is 87 pages long, the first sentence in the section says, theology must grapple with the empirical fact of the non-tangibility of the risen Christ. He's talking about the ascension and how we feel the presence of his absence, which is what actually your book, Faithful Presence, responds to. Like, how do we experience the Christ in the time between the times? And he talks about Bonhoeffer's phrase, religionless Christianity. Right? And he says, uh, we're approaching what Bonhoeffer calls religionless Christianity, though Bonhoeffer saw this as a new development in the history of the church, whereas it has an underlying reality been in the world or with the world since the bodily departure of Jesus on Ascension Day. We are also not too far from what Luther meant by the phrase Deus absconditus, the hidden or concealed God. Bonhoeffer saw Christians as needing to live in a new way because modern thinking had pushed out or superseded objective ideas about God. The forms of religion, for example, the objectifying mediators, or sometimes in the Zizek language, right, we'd say the, the, the signifiers, right? Like uh, we have surveyed cannot withstand the scrutiny and criticism of of the modern, so they need to go better. They need to be made pen ultimate rather than ultimate. Luther, from his side, demythologized the instruments of human religion by typifying most of them as being forms of theology of glory, by which we are blinded to the true reality of God, who is always hidden beneath and within suffering. God is known on earth sub contrario under his opposite. If you want to find the presence of the risen Christ, you can find him paradoxically in loss, despair, suffering, and solitude. For God's glory dwells always in the cross, under the cross, in the form of rejection, termination, and the loss of faith. The iron ration of Christian living consists in the absence of the tangible and the presence of that absence, as in solitude and a continuing state of loss. And then he talks about how in the feeling of that reality, we like for fundamentalists, it's an inerrant Bible. When you're sitting with that 
time between the times. Well, here's where Christ is present in the Aaron Bible. Or if you were a Roman Catholic, it's in the Eucharist or the Magisterium or Eastern Orthodox, the great tradition or Pentecostal. It's in the, the, you know, speaking in tongues. Or if you're a certain kind of liberal, enlightened Christian, it's in this universal phenomena of religious experience. Now, could someone say to you, you've replaced an inerrant Bible with a muscular church, right? Like it's not, the, the problem is not in the objective signifier. It's the wrong one. And we got, if we get back to a kind of Harawazian community of character, muscular in its Anabaptist ability to embrace weakness, but muscular nonetheless, it, it, it kind of, is that, I mean, how, how would you fend off that criticism that, that sort of, that, that, that your focus on practice is, is going to disillusion people because not everyone's going to live in, in, in story, in, in stories of communities that are faithful. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was a long question, uh, uh, Scott. Uh, let me just, could you just, in one line, talk about the the question that had the muscular church? Just summarize it for me so I can Yeah, so, 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 I mean, Paul Zoll thinks that, that what we do, right, uh, m- much of the trappings of Christendom, so to speak, right, that, that you're, you, are in, you are one of, you know, the culture's best critics of this stuff. You know, an inerrant Bible or a certain kind of church magisterium or certain kinds of sacerdotalism, these are all actually preclude the power of the presence felt in, mysteriously also in his absence. So, I mean, I think some people might see the kind of Harawas community of character, you know, the, 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 the accent is really on the story of the church. I mean, that's the important sort of thing to lead with, and, and that's what makes faith palpable. Well, that just seems like it could be. I mean, some people could say, well, you and the inerrantist are not have, you're, you're saying the same thing. We need this objective anchor that we can, in some sense, point to, smell it, you know, poke it, celebrate it. The inerrantist wants it in the inerrant Bible. You know, I always, mm-hmm. it's funny though, they never buy genuine leather Bibles. They always buy that cheap bonded leather. I'm like, at least if you really believe it, you'd buy genuine leather, like a nice Cambridge press. But like, how, I mean, aren't you replacing on some level the inerrant church, the inerrant Bible with a sort of, another objective signifier yeah the yeah. powerful faithful uh, i think that church. i think you know there's a little bit of uh, the protestant principle going on there i mean tillich talked about it you know the whole uh, protestant angst uh, against the catholics for putting too much oomph or muscle as you put it in the church the church is this this infallible uh, place. Uh, this is where you must anchor life, and 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 then again, it became triumphalist, and it took the power into its own, controlled the power, and this is why the Protestants, rightfully, and why you Bardians are uh, uptight about. I'm, not, I'm two- not a Bardian. Bar- I, I'm not enough. I'm not an any Ian. I'm, I'm a. You go to Princeton, uh, you're a Bardian. I, I mean, I'm just a Christian. <laughs> okay. I mean, allegedly I'm a Christian. I mean, I don't know. They haven't kicked me oh, out yet. Oh, there you did. You, there you just did a good Howard was. I would not. This is Howard. I would not know I'm a Christian if my friends didn't tell me. Okay, so anyways. I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just a goddamn Mason's kid <laughs> from Texas. You know, I, I, I outwork them. I just outwork them. <laughs> all right, all right. Anyways, uh, okay. So uh, here's the interesting thing. I do... I do not think I am replaced. Well, I 
the, the inerrancy thing's got a whole list of problems uh, that are directly related to this footnote I'm going to read out of Faithful Presence. Uh, when I talk about the character and nature of the church, I, I and, and this is footnote 17 uh, in the back of the book on page uh, on appendix three. It says, you know this because you went to Princeton, you know about Bart and how he uses the classic patristic terms and hypostasis and n hypostasis and beginning with an A and hypostasis emphasizes that the human nature of Jesus Christ has no independent existence apart from the preexistent word in the incarnation. Okay. The use of an hypostasis therefore safeguards the utter dependence of the creature on the creator. Right. Um, so the creature is always dependent on the creator. The church as a human form is always dependent on Jesus for its existence, but Jesus does not depend on the church for its existence. Bart characterizes the church-Jesus relation in these terms. The relationship, therefore, between Christ and the church always carries an asymmetrical character. The church is always totally dependent on Christ for its existence, and yet Christ is never dependent on the church for its existence. And so there's almost like, if I can say, an existential reality that the church, by these practices, opens up space to depend, submit, surrender itself to the lordship, kingship of Christ, and in that space, he comes to be present. But as soon as we start to take it over, try to control it, get too secure in it, we have the power, we have Jesus, we have his presence, and you don't. Jesus be gone. Jesus is no longer there. Because, uh, so the church is this kind of Bardian institution, if I can say that. Bard probably wouldn't be happy with the way I say that the church extends the presence of Christ into the world, makes him visible, that he is present over the whole world, that God is at work in the whole world, he's present in the whole world through the Holy Spirit, but we become present to his presence, making visible his presence so the rest of the world can see it and thereby be, uh, be invited in to what he's doing to renew the world. So th does that kind of, um, that anhypostasis understanding, does that kind of ease your um, nervousness over putting too much import and security in the church being the church and that we need the church to ground our identity and who we are in the world? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm not nervous at all. I mean, I'm fairly relaxed, but I, at least I think, let me take my poll. I have an Apple watch. My wife got me an Apple watch for my Are they, Is for your my pulse birthday. going up? When you start talking about the church being too important, she, how do I? I don't know how I how I check it. I don't think I feel like it was going down, but a lot of people are worried. Don't Fitch, you make the church too important. Where is this church? Where is it? Well, I, that's. I mean, I, I no. I mean, I think where it is. I mean, you tell some incredibly moving stories in the book. I mean, the story the story that moved me most was the story you told about this guy John, who's an ex-con, who's really struggling his marriage, and his landlord accused him of. Uh, well, he, he had not paid his rent for a while and, and he accused the landlord of some things and you, you all sat together and it, it's incredibly moving the, you know, the, re the sort of reconciliation of that situation was incredibly, the landlord forgave the rent, gave him another month's rent free. The guy who was in an abusive relationship with his spouse, I mean, he, he winds up connecting some dots through this patient. Starts to unwind the antagonisms yeah. of his life. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, it's interesting that those stories are incredibly powerful. I think the, the, I think about like somebody like Von Balthasar, right? Or Karl Barth, or I think of Robert Capon. It's like, this, and even Rob Bell has had this effect for me of late. I've, I've been listening to his podcast lately because um, I didn't know his work that well. And I interviewed him. And so I did a bunch of research 
And I, I found, I've come to find him compelling in a way I didn't, because he, the way he talks about God and Jesus is very rich, textured. It, there's thick description, and so you, I, you, I could find more thick descriptive passages about the church in your work or practices than I could about the beauty of Christ mm. th- that I'd find in something like Bard or von Balthasar or Bonhoeffer or Capon or even just listening to Rob Bell's podcast. Now, I mean, I think you could say, hey, look, I'm, I'm doing third article stuff here, right? I'm, 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 I'm actually, there's a reason why I, I don't spend as much time. I could give you second article books of people I'm reading, right? Like in New Testament and theology, right? And that would probably be your response. And they'd say, let me, and just let me speak for your Fitch. I'll ask questions and answer them in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right. I, I am doing ecclesiology. I'm not doing Christology. And so, uh, and, and most of my work is uh, centered around uh, ecclesiology and the problem of e- ecclesiology post-Christendom for evangelicals. But having said that, I did spend uh, an appendix uh, and and a couple of uh, long uh, diatribes on how the church is the extension of the presence of Christ. Talked about the Trinity, the importance of the Trinity, and uh, how we need to see the Trinity in the at work in the world, and that is not just the spirit in the world that we're trying to catch up to, like I characterized, like typical uh, kind of Protestant mainline liberal ideas. And it's not just Jesus. Oh, he was in the past. He did this thing on the cross. He reconciled us to God. Now we just have to uh, basically uh, apply the past work to the present. No, he, Jesus is actually alive, present, extending his work through the Holy Spirit, through the church, through us. He's present. He's among us. And his presence is what enables us to discern his presence in the world and make that presence visible among us through through things like when an ex-con reconciles with a neighbor and his wife and reconciliation breaks out. So you're you're right on the first hand. It's third article stuff, but yet it's impossible without understanding uh, some of the aspects of what Christology is in terms of the Trinity and the twofold move of God into the world through First, the presence of Christ extending to the church and his reign as the right hand at the right hand of the Father over all things. But you're right. I'm not talking about the, like von Baldrige, I'm not talking about the person of Jesus Christ so much as his work extended to the church. So it is ecclesiology but, first, Christology a little bit less. Yeah, you know, and that's what Bart said in his mature reflections, you know, on Schleiermacher. He said the way we should maybe properly understand. Schleiermacher is it's a theology from the third article first and so we could put Fitch and Schleiermacher in this great tradition oh, man, of I people of that. people that are working you know it's funny because my teacher John Burgess from Pittsburgh Seminary gave a great inaugural lecture called last things first and he said that it basically we recite the creed first article second third but the way we receive its truths are third first and he and he and part of the lecture was the architecture of the great churches in Pittsburgh and what they told you about their views of uh, word, sacrament, spirit, and the hope for all things. And wow. so, so there you go. For, last things first. That's the next book. I want a footnote. I want some kind of acknowledgement. Let, Where can the, I get a copy of that? Uh, I, I'll send, I can send it to you. Or I'll look it up. Yeah, I'd love to have that. It's a great, it's a great um, thing. Can I read you one more thing? Yes. This is, is this from Zoll? No, this is from a Lutheran psychiatrist and theologian, Frank Lake. The book is the best thing I've ever read on pastoral care. It's called Clinical Theology. It's a, it's about 1,200 pages long. Oh, dude. Dude, he, I just saw that book in Holtzclaw's office just yeah. now. He, this, guy, this guy knew Newbegin. He was a missionary to India. Um, wow. 
So this is what I think. No, let me. No, this is guys Lutheran to the core, right? So I want to test. I'm testing your Christendom Lutheran. You know the antibodies. If the so he's talking about um, the differences here in a in a just a parenthetical thing in the introduction about um, pain and suffering and how the gospel offers different light. The natural man in us tends to reject the paradox that mental pain and spiritual joy can exist together in us without diminishing either the agony of the one or the glory of the other. The whole personality may be afflicted by a sense of weakness, emptiness, and pointlessness without diminishing in the least our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is possible because Christ is alive to, to reenact the mystery of his suffering and glory in us. So far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any inner-directed questioning of our basic human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. Does it pass the Fitch test or no? Um, I like I like anything that says uh, suffering, pain, um, struggle, uh, that we can find an open space there for God's presence because I believe, and this is partly due to my latest fixation, which is reading Greg Boyd's book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I believe these are the places God works. And so when you talk about theology of the cross versus theology of glory, Lutheran thing, I mean, I'm there. I'm there with you. I know you got to, you love that stuff. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the stuff you critique, I think, rightly, in large evangelical organizations with the name gospel in them. And I'll just leave, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, a lot of what they call theology of the cross is actually, I think, a theology of ba about the cross, which winds up being a theology of glory in disguise. I agree with you a thousand percent. Okay, that was worth the price of admission to this podcast, what you just said right there. Which was, which was free. Yeah, I mean, I think you can do a theology about the cross in the guise of a theology of the cross, which really turns into a theology of glory. If a theology of glory is kind of trying to build the Tower of Babel, right, trying to sort of find an anchor for transcendence and depth in something in our own power and control and, and, and insight and human ingenuity, you know, as opposed to a theology of the cross, which lets the bottom, it's not afraid to let the bottom of your humanity be knocked out. And in fact, that that's where you begin to learn the first things, the gospel, right? Grace. Yes. But so people that talk sometimes, some people that talk in long, 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 long pages and, and, and diatribes about the, the power of the cross, it seems like a theology of glory. In that, you know, we've crafted a certain kind of framework on the atonement. And if you don't have it, you, you don't have anything. And, and, and it just doesn't sound like it's, it, it's spoken in, in a voice of spiritual poverty. <laughs> but real spiritual assertion in the worst sense. You know, like what Luther thought the schoolmen did. Like, man, you guys are just so enamored with your intellects and, 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 the, and the intellectual constructions you can make. And this is the farthest thing from being where God really is on the ground in the, the simple, basic, and fragile 
nature of the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the more uh, uh, typical uh, atonement theologies of evangelicalism that you seem to be critiquing right now uh, want to do away with suffering. They want to, uh, oh, you got guilt, you got this, okay, receive this, boom, shakalaka, it's gone. And uh, the actual outworking of that, the sanctification in that, and the growth in that is kind of, uh, it turns into a strength, it can turn very quickly into a control legalism. Okay, now I got to go out and beat down the bushes and I got to make hay for Jesus. And so I agree with you that that, that, that that has turned into, and this is why evangelicalism and versions of uh, prosperity gospel and megachurch Christianity and consumerism go so well together and why they've been such a failure changing our culture and now, having an impact. And faithful presence, you know, you list practices like, you know, the Lord's table, reconciliation, being with the least of these um, being with children, embracing the sort of fivefold gifting, you know, so the whole church is called, you know, to the whole mission, to the whole world. You see. But you say, this is interesting to me, you say that we've got to live in the, a couple different modes. There's a close circle, not closed, you say close, where, you know, for instance, the Eucharist, we, we celebrate that, and that is for the church, you know, that's for the gathered visible demonstration of people that are baptized, that are explicit. You know, my, my teacher, Jeff Stout, says, you know, he looks at Bart and says, Bart's got witting and unwitting witnesses. That closed circle is for the witting witnesses, right? We're witnesses in, a, in, in you know, a conscious sense. We're really, you know, we've been awakened to the fact that we belong to God and Christ. Then you say it's got to move, though, to a sort of dotted circle, right, where the Eucharist doesn't end there. It goes not just the Lord's table exp- extends to our table. And, and there you know, people are present in their communities, actually following Jesus into the world. You know, Jesus runs ahead of us almost after the Eucharist, you know, is out there and Christ plays in those places. Then you have this interesting thing where you talk about the half circle where you want to sort of say, hey, look, I'm with the, I think, hey, you know, the the neo-reform, the culture changers, the James David Turner's, everybody, look, there's some kernel of truth here. But we need to go kind of uh, in a position of vulnerability and openness, not in one of power and control. Is that fair yes. that that's the key to yeah. the, la- the yeah, It seems like you're trying to unite mission and practice, mission and sacrament, mission and you're trying to unite all the circles. And is it fair to say where it fails for a lot of evangelicals or a lot of Christians, North America in general, is, is, is in that last step where they want to well, kind of... I would- I would say it fails for James Davison Hunter. I, uh, somehow he does uh, have that center, though, so something's working for him. But you've yet, right, I mean. <laughs> right. But you know, here, here's we go into the world as guests. We go in the world as vulnerable. We go as sheep among wolves. We go there with nothing, no power, no purse. Matt Luke chapter ten. But but we go there to tend to what he's doing. A person of peace is someone who 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 between me and someone else, something is happening. The presence of Christ is here. Now let's discern what he's doing and where he's taking us. And then I can say, hey, the kingdom of God is here, and people are going to get healed and so forth. But we have to go in as guest vulnerable. God's the one changing the world, not us. We need to go and be vulnerable to make space for him to be recognized as present. Yeah. So I'm, uh, uh, where I differ with James Davison Hunter is probably, and for that matter, uh, if I can say this, Jamie uh, K. Smith, uh, is the posture of vulnerability we enter the world. We enter the world not having everything figured out. Instead, we enter the world knowing God is present, and w- and the question is, will he be welcomed 
there when we go to be present and say, I think I just saw what I just saw. Did you see it? It and 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 that's where and we, we know how to discern his presence because of the close circle. We know how to disciple our one another into living in the presence of Christ in everyday life by that dotted circle in the neighborhoods. But it's when we get to the half circle, when we enter vulnerably as guests, that Jesus promises to be present, go with us and and manifest his power as we discern with people what he's doing. Does that ex, ex, so I think I see the church as all three circles. I don't see the church as just what happens inside uh, the closed circle. Um, in fact, if that's all it is, it turns into a maintenance organization to keep Christians happy. I also um, don't think it's only the half circle, uh, just being out there working for, being present to, among the hurting and the poor, and bringing the kingdom out there and, and the justice of the world. Because separate from discerning his presence, it becomes all about us and what we're going to do and how we're going to change things. And we always get exhausted and it never really happens because of the power structures that, that happen when we no longer depend on and surrender to and submit to the presence of Christ. So is part of, you know, it's interesting because, so you're a Harawas guy, you're a Harawas disciple. Harawas, you could say, two of the big influences are John Howard Yoder, right? A one of the great 20th century theologians and an Anabaptist and Alistair McIntyre, who is a you know, Marxist turned Thomist, Roman Catholic, wrote the great book After Virtue. I can imagine Yoder saying what you just said about going as the world's guest. I could never imagine Alistair McIntyre saying it. It's a little harder for Alistair McIntyre, but you know he had he had this idea of the traditions, uh, uh, the multi traditions in any society. One tradition coming up against another and creating uh, what he called an epistemological crisis or or a gaping hole in my way of understanding a certain situation. I don't have the resources in this tra- this tradition to uh, figure it out. And oh my goodness, over here I find it and it makes sense. And this this is the way traditions grow and develop. So it's not like, uh, I mean, I think Alistair McIntyre might get to uh, uh, a, a bad rap for being a sectarian in the way that you were implying there. But yes, it is a little harder with Alistair McIntyre. And, you know, um, where did uh, Howard Wass go from there? He went to Wittgenstein and uh, Paul Homer at uh, Yale and uh, all uh, that grammar stuff. And and anytime you're focused so much on language and how you uh, shape the world and understand the world, make sense of the world, and language is all about the way it's used and so forth, you have that sectarian impulse there too. Uh, but that's why. Uh, but but that wasn't the case with Yoder, and that's why Howard Wass needed Yoder. That's why McIntyre. That's why Wittgenstein. That's that's why. Um, you know, even Charles Taylor needs uh, Yoder in the, in that constellation of thinkers. And Taylor University needed Dave Fitch at least for a season. I mean, one year, one year. That's well, one year's enough of Fitch. That's one like, year out in the farm country. That's like seven Indiana. years of like normal human years. Have you ever read Robert Capon? I have. On the parables. Yeah. He has a great part where he talks about in the wheat and the tares where basically all evil has to do is just, it it doesn't really have to antagonize. It just has to put some weeds in and then depend on the good to use right-handed power. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Isn't that priceless? Yeah. It's just so good. But isn't that like your fear, right? If the, if the fear of somebody like Tim Keller or other sort of uh, people that are, that would look at the influence 
the church's influence on the in the world in a different way than you. If they would fear that the neo-anabaptist thing is going to lead to passivity or something, would you say to them that what, you guys just don't underestimate the self-deception of doing good things? <laughs> like when you uh, kind of come in there and kind of and think you can kind of go in. I mean, that you talk about that, that in the book, right? That that sometimes that in that half one of the reasons you talk about the half circle is that man sometimes certain kinds of Christianity forms of Christianity send people into the world to be quote unquote influencers and they wind up just getting completely influenced and not even knowing it right they get absorbed into this happens all the time this is happening with all uh, in my opinion with all the progressive evangelicals who think they're doing justice in the world I ask I ask them how do they know what justice is and they just assume that everybody knows what justice is and I you know to use an old Howard Watts line then there's no justice without Jesus and there's no Jesus without justice so if you don't have Jesus there there's no justice but no justice well, there's no Jesus there. And and so uh, we don't really know the completion of all things into the justice of the world that God is doing without Jesus. But that doesn't mean that there's not good things going on out there. That doesn't mean there's not little uh, inklings of, you know, what, what the Reformed people call common grace. But there is no completion of what God is doing in the world apart from uh, the way he works. I thought you were going in this question to the question of power. You know, uh, Niebuhr, the Niebuhr brothers. By the way, can I just say I hate the term common grace? Cause I gra- hate it too. Grace is never common. It's always special. It's always particular. Well, you've it, just it, crossed the Anabaptist line. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 I can't now, even, I can't even be a Baptist, let alone, you know, Anabaptist. Just I'm, as I am, you just became an Anabaptist. But anyways, uh, you know, the problem with uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie K. well, I'm going to stay off him. Uh, let's go with James Davison Hunter. Is And let's go with Andy Crouch and his books on power and how to play God and all that stuff, though. Isn't that the name of one of his books? How to play God? You don't know. But no, anyways, it's got the elephant on the cover, right? Or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess what, what I'm trying to say is is they I know assume, Andy's a great guy. I know Andy. He's, I, li- yeah, I love. Yeah, I know him too. He's a great guy. I'm not you, just because you criticize somebody doesn't mean you aren't best friends. Like you, for instance, I, I rip you. As soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to be calling about but, ten. But, but you know what? There is, a, there is a tension though, right? Because I remember I was in a I was in a my friend Mark Oppenheimer is a Jewish journalist and has the best podcast on the internet called Unorthodox. Free plug for Mark. But he would invite me to a, th- a thing, a panel he was on about free speech on campuses. And it was, he was the token liberal. He's like, there was one other Jew on the panel, so he's not the token Jew, but he, he's a token liberal. It was like Dave French was on the panel and all these other cultural conservatives. National Review is one of the co-sponsors. And they were talking about free speech, free speech, free speech. And yet the, the, the acerbic nature of the, and, you know, like, and they kept saying, and I even questioned about this. They said, we tell people you attack ideas not people. But I say, you know, that sounds very sophisticated, but most people can't divorce those. Most people, once you attack the ideas, you've attacked the person. And most of the time when somebody says, hey, I'm not criticizing you, I'm criticizing your idea. Most of us are so psychologically wed to the things we think that that doesn't preclude us from feeling tremendous shame and then being closed off to any future dialogue because, well, anytime I hear that idea, now I sort of, the, the shame is triggered that came up when the idea was criticized because my parents or, or brother or sister or teacher wasn't good at criticism. I, I just think when we say that, it, there's a truth to it, but it, it's an abstract truth because most of the time when I see people or when I criticize ideas, I've probably wounded the person. <laughs> I mean, quite yeah, honestly, I mean, I could go off on a little riff on on the way ideology works, the way it creates subjectivities, and how you get melded into certain causes and ideas. 
uh, because they're part of you and therefore you attack the idea, you're attacking the person. Um, but um, that's not necessarily, uh, and there's a lot of us who refuse the ideological temptation to make everything about me. I'm actually believe God's at work in the world. He's forming and shaping the future. And for me to engage in dialogue does not mean that I have to own an idea. I can actually give up an idea or contribute to the, the development of a new idea. And that's more important than me. And we have this problem, by the way, in, in Washington, D.C. right now, and, un, unable to uh, – uh, enter into a dialogue for the purpose of something bigger and beyond just what I want to achieve or my side wants to achieve. There's nothing back... bigger than Trump, and we're going to have the best ideas and the best health Repeal and replace. Okay, but anyways, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, a new reali- it's a new reality. It's a new repeal without replace. It's a new reality show called No Survivors. <laughs> All right. Uh, before you di- before you. Uh, uh, get me off on another tangent. Uh, I want to get back to this issue of power. I believe the Niebuhr brothers. I believe James Davison Hunter. I believe Andy Crouch in some of his books. I believe a lot of reformed thinkers can only see power in one, one way. And it's kind of the coercive, coercive hierarchical, uh, uh, power structures of current day and current society, and they can't imagine society uh, not operating on that kind of power. And therefore, like James Davison Hunter, if you reject that notion of power as the way God works for his salvation, you reject all power. And no, that's not what uh, Anabaptists like myself, John Howard Yoder, even Howard Wass, I even read Howard Wass today on this issue saying something like this. There is a power. There is a power in the presence of God and the way he works to reorient the world. And it is nonviolent. It is, he comes to be present to another person. And in that relationship, Things are reordered non-violently. <clears throat> that's the way, that's the kind of power I'm talking about in faithful presence. That's the kind of power the church shall bring. That's the way God shall work to complete his purposes. The other kind of power, what uh, Luther called the um, left hand, you know, the, viol- the the power of the sword. I mean, let's face it, God holds back the forces of evil and Satan uh, and we might call that course of power, but it's not. It's just through his presence holding back those evil forces. And that in and of itself is a good because it allows space for people to live outside of the forces and the destruction of evil and Satan. But on the other hand, um, that's not God is only going to work through this this presence. And evil is a participation in the coercion of 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 can I say evil or the fall or the broken world? <clears throat> so, anyways, summarizing two sentences or less, what I just said: there's two different forms of power in the world: the right hand, and the left hand. That's a good Lutheran idea. There's two ways God. There's two ways God does not work through violence, but He does hold back the violence to allow space for His presence if we will cooperate. There's two ways that God works in the world. The church is called to work by making space for His presence in the world. That's what I feel is lacking. James Davison Hunter, the Niebuhr brothers, etc. All those other characters that we mentioned before. Who, who of your critics do you learn the most from? <clears throat> oh, you got me on that one. That takes a lot of thought. I mean, I can tell you this on Facebook, 
every day. People might not believe this, but I'm on there. Usually I'm, I'm going through a bunch of readings. I'm, my mind is saying, oh, this makes sense here. Oh, this is a good one-line zinger that summarizes what I really want to remember about this text. Or I'll just make some kind of an inference from whatever I'm reading, a theological point. And then various people will engage me. A lot of times I'm saying it in a, in a way that I'm trying to provoke the current ideological balloon. I usually engage with memes. You engage with memes? I don't do memes. I, I just usually put silly irritating. pictures on when you do that. Just uh, when I, you come, I, when I, you come on my Facebook uh, Yeah, page? I usually put up like just funny pictures and stuff like that or fu- or one-liners. I really I'm 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 so interested in what people are saying and how they're pushing back and where the anger's coming from and how those who enter into the space and just ask good questions. I'm so interested in that dynamic and I learn so much even when I get all irritated like I did today on Facebook and and was debating uh, a few what I'll call progressive evangelicals on the Eugene Peterson episode. I just learned so much. And I just want to say to all those people, I I have no more space on my Facebook page. You have to follow me, but through the follow function, you can get you can get in on all the action uh, on my Facebook page. But I've run out of space for new friends. I'm trying to get rid of some friends, so I don't know what to do about that. I mean, get, there's probably a lot of people there that don't even know, know they're on my page anymore. But I don't know how to do that on my Facebook page. But if you're listening out. to this podcast and you are, go to your Facebook, see if you're Fitch's friend, and if you didn't know, defriend him to make space for people. Space. That are uh, it's like a nightclub. People just sitting outside the meatpacking district in New York, waiting yeah. to see where the action is. I got I got over six hundred friends waiting in line to get on my Facebook. Uh, I got page. in on the early level. Yeah, you were way back when before you know, before I, when I was nothing and you were the big time. Uh, I, I was, that, I'm still waiting for my day. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm still nothing. But you, sir, are the king of podcasts. You must. Think the, you must I think increase. the world recognizes that. No, I, I, I am. A, I have this little corner of Langhorne, Pennsylvania, that with a lot of foam. Yeah. By the way, I'm in Philadelphia at the uh, whatever that conference is, September uh, 20th or something. We ought to. We ought to have a beer or something. We should. So, I'll be there. Can I read you one more thing? Yes. No, this is we, this is the this best. Is gonna, this, this is going to wrap the cap of the. This well, this is, is just up. this is the last thing I'm going to read you, but. Okay. This is what I would say is the best of Christian, right? No, you might disagree. So this is why I want to read you. I've I've, I've carefully curated some. Who is this? Who this is, is this? from Thomas Merton, the Seven Story. Oh, wow, you really hit me with a lot of good stuff. Today. I'm trying to throw you at different things, different. Uh... So this is Merton going back to France as a kid, and he's later writing about France. He says, "How did it ever happen?" that when the dregs of the world had collected in Western Europe, when Goth and Frank and Norman and Lombard had mingled with the rot of old Rome to form a patchwork of hybrid races, all of them notable for ferocity, hatred, stupidity, craftiness, lust, and brutality, how did it happen that from all this there should come Gregorian chant, monasteries and cathedrals, the poems of Prudentius, the commentaries and histories of Bede, the moralia of Gregory the Great, St. Augustine's City of God and his Trinity, the writings of Anselm, St. Bernard's sermons and the canticles, the poetry of Cademan and Sinwolf and Langland and Dante, St. Thomas's Summa and the Oxyanese of Scotus. How did it happen that even today a couple of ordinary French stonemasons or a carpenter and his apprentice can put up a dovecote or a barn that has more architectural perfection than the piles of eclectic stupidity that grow up at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars on the campuses of American universities? 
When I went to France in 1925, returning to the land of my birth, I was also returning to the fountains of the intellectual and spiritual life of the world to which I belonged. I was returning to the spring of natural waters, if you will, but waters purified and cleansed, but cleaned by grace with such powerful effect that even the corruption and decadence of the French society of our day has never been able to poison them entirely or reduce them once again to their original and barbarian corruption. Room for a critical appreciation of, criti- of, of Christendom like that, you s- that, where Merton could see the, e- the real evil and violence in these things. And yet, when he lists those beautiful things that we, you and I could not think or imagine Christianly without, I mean, is, is it a mixed legacy? Is, is Christendom, like all of us, at the same time sinner and saint? Well, you know, as I'm listening to that, uh, I'm anticipating this question, and I'm, I'm, I, I can't remember all the various things he lists there. But in my opinion, I mean, and maybe I was doing this in an editorial function in my head, but I was going through all those things. You know, the monasteries, the simple building of a of a barn. Did he call it? The way he talked about all those things were not the parts of Christendom that aligned itself with the powers that I was earlier criticizing, the coercive, violent powers of state usurping, lording and over people. But it was this very simple, these places that got together and made presents for Christ. And out of this came these wonderful, this one, Cademan's poet, poetry, um, the uh, monasteries and, and these buildings that he talked about, not the, not the, powerful glass buildings of ugly buildings of American universities, but these little wonderful architectural wonders that he saw in the countryside of France. So to me, uh, uh, Christendom cannot destroy the true fountain of Christianity, even though it may do its damage uh, in a lot of different ways. Still, those will always resist and go and be present in the neighborhoods, looking for making space for the presence of Christ to work and this is what I think um, a lot of the monastic, neo-monastic movements of our day, the missional church movements, all the house church movements, all that stuff. I'm not trying to over-romanticize the rejection of the megachurch in the United States, but man, it sure seems like the megachurch is being left behind by all these efforts. I see it everywhere. House churches, missional churches, community churches, trying to be present in their neighborhoods, making space for God to work in these wonderful ways. I uh, so, so to me, that text from Merton, very encouraging, loved it. I don't know if it changes my critique of Christendom, but it does give me a lot of hope. And also Greg Boyd, who you mentioned, he's a megachurch pastor. And I, and I think of Pope Francis, who is this strange guy who is seeming, who is trying to navigate this role of prophet and priest. Yeah, both of them, by the way. I mean, yeah. Greg Boyd, uh, sure, he's a megachurch pastor and... And and I could tell you little stories about how he feels about being a megachurch pastor, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be appropriate here. But and I'm sure he doesn't even know he told me some of this stuff. But but he, here's the man who wrote the book, uh, the myth of uh, Christian America, whatever the name of that book was, and two thousand people leave his church. And you know, so here's a guy struggling with the monolith of Christendom, church, megachurch. You know, yes, he's part of he's pastor of megachurch, but he sure as heck is struggling it, and certainly. Pope Francis is doing the same as the uh, head of the Catholic Church, and and I admire those people, um, but they got a big, they got a tough task uh, to in terms of moving and leading a group of people uh, back into the fields of the presence of Christ. Fitch, I could talk to you all day, but you know things we all have things we must tend to. 
you know, but I, this is great. And, and everybody should read Faithful Presence and follow you on Facebook once those people that are just taking up space would make room. At the yeah, table. Yeah, they're taking up space. <laughs> well, let me just say, you can't hit the follow button and get all the advantages of getting into all the conversations and being, uh, uh, what do you call it, notified and whatever. No, no problem. And we'll sort this Facebook page out uh, sometime in the immediate eternity, uh, whenever God, if, if Jesus tarries, as we like to say. Uh, but please join me on Facebook anytime, and I'd love to have you. And it's been great being with you on this podcast. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. So, so sorry it took this long, but uh, let's do it again in another year. I got a book coming out, Beyond Enemies, next year, uh, which will play in all, a lot of these debates we just started to talk about today. It, it will be my pleasure, Fitch. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And check out Dave's book, Faithful Presence. It's thoughtful, provocative, engaging, well worth the read. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.